Today, we are wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes. And to get us where we're heading today, I'm going to tell you two boat stories. Uh, one is about a boat called the Bismarck, and one is called the Barnaby. And so um, we'll start with the Bismarck. Uh, anybody heard of the Bismarck? Probably a few of you. Um, in World War II, English uh, Navy sailors were terrified of one boat, and that was the battleship, the Bismarck. It was the largest European warship. It had eight giant 15-inch guns, and it was super fast. It could go 30 knots. It could outrun the British fleet. And on May 24, 1941, a British plane spotted the Bismarck coming from, from German waters, and one of the ships was deployed to go intercept it, called the Hood. And it was promptly destroyed. The hood was destroyed, and only three of the 2,000 British Navy crew members survived that. Three of the 2,000. A couple days later, the British fleet came into contact with the Bismarck again, and like it had done so many times, it just started to outrun them, pull right away, and then something interesting happened. As it pulled away from them, it did a big giant U-turn and started heading back directly into the English fleet where they were able to fire upon it and it sunk. And what had happened was a British biplane uh, that carried a torpedo, dropped a torpedo, and the torpedo hit the massive rudder on the, on the uh, Bismarck and it lost its ability to navigate and it whipped around and headed in the wrong direction direction. And here's the thing I want you to remember about the Bismarck. It lost its direction. It lost its direction, and all the firepower and powerful engines in the world couldn't keep it out of the path of danger. Okay? That's the Bismarck. Okay, now let me tell you about the Barnaby. Now, Barnaby isn't quite as impressive as the Bismarck. There's me on the Barnaby in my 20s. It's a motor sailor. Uh, it was a motor sailor, um, kind of half sailboat. Didn't wasn't like a sleek racing yacht or anything. wasn't like a power cruiser. Um, but it was a great, sturdy, solid, forty-five foot motor sailor. And my friends that I met doing missions work in Africa, Alan, Jillian, great couple. Um, they invited me to come join them on this boat, and they were planning to sail it all the way from Alaska to Madagascar and use it on on missions work. And so we were going to sail it this summer from. Um, Seldovia, Alaska, this little town, all the way down to Seattle. And so I went, I headed up there, and we had some adventures, we had some misadventures, and I spent one of the longest nights of my life on the Barnaby. See, here's what happened. Um, we had to take it across the bay from Seldovia to Homer, and we had to pull it out of the water. You can see it being pulled out of the water put it up in dry dock, and then we were, we, we were completely retrofitting the diesel fuel system. So we pulled the tanks out, pulled all the, you know, the gas lines and stuff out, and then reinstalled them and got the whole thing ready to go on this long journey, threw it back in the water, and took off back across the bay and motored over back towards Seldovia. I think I have a map of that over here, the Homer Spit, and then um, Seldovia. It's this gorgeous, gorgeous spot. And right as we come up to the mouth of the bay in Seldovia, something interesting happens. We got out in the open bay and hit this like four foot chop and we were bobbing around. Before you know it, the engine just died. We're like, oh no, what just happened? And we were like so close. You almost could have paddled in with like canoe paddles. We were like almost back. 
and we were trying to get the engine started again and bobbing around. I was starting to feel a little queasy. And um, they sent me down into the engine room because we figured out, well, maybe we need to purge the fuel lines. Maybe we got some, some air in the fuel lines. And so we were down there, and I was pumping, like purging the fuel lines. There's a, a special bucket that Al had put there. It's a diesel fuel only. It was a dedicated bucket for purging the fuel lines. And so I was purging them, and I was smelling diesel fumes, and I was rocking back and forth and feeling more and more queasy. And pretty quickly... Um, I was the first violator of the diesel bucket. Uh, it was never the same. <laughs> and it was the longest night of my life. I was so sick. If you've ever been really seasick, you know the feeling. Like the only way I could stay halfway comfortable is to lay flat on my back. And here's what happened. We bobbed all night long. All night long. We couldn't get that engine started. And we bobbed all the way right back where we started. <laughs> we floated all the way, got to the other side of the Homer spit. The water got calm. As soon as it got calm, we were able to fire the engine right up and get in. But it was miserable. And here's what I realized. And here's the thing to remember about the Barnaby. What did we lose? Our rudder was fine, but we lost our propulsion, didn't we? We lost the thing that was pro propelling us toward where we needed to go. And later I realized... Uh, it's kind of the ideal current and uh, situation because had the waves been going in a different direction, that could have been a very dangerous situ situation we could have foundered. Foundered. What does the word foundered mean? Some of you, um, you've heard it. It's a nautical term, right? It's related to a Latin word meaning bottom or base. When something founders, it usually hits the bottom in one sense or another. It sinks and hits the bottom hits the bottom when your business or uh, perhaps a bank founders, it's not a good thing. It's going down. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, um, what, what Solomon is going to say really about this whole book is, is he says, here's what, this, here's what these words are. They're like the rudder and uh, they're the rudder giving you direction in their propulsion that hopefully is going to propel you in a worthy destination uh, to a worthy destination for life. He says, if you let my words give you direction and propel you toward true meaning in life, they will keep you from foundering in life. And so chapter 12 is his conclusion of everything he writes from this book. And this book was really the grand experiment of Solomon's life. If you remember back to the early chapters, if you've been with us, he begins by telling us, I, I searched for real meaning in life. Um, first, uh, man, pleasure. I partied harder than you will ever party. Uh, we had 20,000 people at these parties night after night with the DJ. And, and we just went for it. And we had like 100 Cows on the barbecue. That's a big barbecue. And it didn't do it for me. Lost its shine. Didn't fill that thing in me that was missing. And then I tried pleasure. I thought more and more relationships. If, if one's good, a thousand's better. So I had a thousand women. Tried pleasure. Tried wealth. If you go back and read history, Solomon at this point in history is the wealthiest guy on the planet beyond anything you can comprehend. Um, 
accomplishment. He said, I built like hundreds of buildings, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the ancient Solomon's temple uh, that he built for God, and then um, all these palaces. And then he's like, oh, you feel pretty proud of yourself. You got your spring bulbs in? Anybody? Ready? You're like, I got them in. He's like, well, uh, I planted national forests. Kind of outpunted you a little bit. And I tried all these different things. And what does he say? His conclusion is it's all vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. In a meaning to, in, or in a pursuit to find meaning, to find fulfillment in all of these different pursuits, he said, I found it to be like vanity, habel, a vapor or a mist, like something you just couldn't grasp. I found that when I got to there, because there was where I was trying to get and that's going to do it for me, there moved. And now there is over there. So I tried that. And see, you've probably lived like this. It's so easy for us to, to lose our direction in life, to have an idea of the direction that we think will bring us meaning and fulfillment in life and have all the energy in the world going towards that and then wake up and figure out we went in the wrong destination. We got the position we dreamed of having, but we left a relationship behind in the meantime. We realized we lost something very valuable. Uh, we got the next shiny object but it didn't meet that thing in our soul that was missing. And here's the difference between Solomon and us is he says something. He, he tells us, I actually, I actually got to the end of myself. And, and, and why his words are so important to listen to is because for most of us, we'll never get to this place where we think we've come to the end of ourselves. There will always be another there. There will always be a shinier object there will always be in our mind the idea that the grass is greener over here. And he says, no, I actually accomplished it all. What you could dream of that, would find, that you would find meaning and purpose in, and it just doesn't do it. And yet so often we spend all of our energy propelled in a direction that we think will. And if we're not careful... We'll never stop to ask, am I headed in the right direction? Or maybe, maybe for some, you will find out what Solomon did about pleasure, about success. When you find out it doesn't fill that thing in your heart, um, you will, like him, you will hate life. He said, I hated life. I was miserable. It did not fill that thing within me. And he despaired. And for so many, that's, that's where they find themselves when they recognize that the path they've been on isn't doing it for them. Despair. You lose propulsion. There's no energy. There's no drive bringing you towards actually living for something that matters. And so in this series, Living Life Backward, Solomon in chapter 12, he's going to say, hey, listen up one more time as we conclude. Listen up. And let my words create direction for you. Let them propel you in life in a way that brings you to a worthy destination. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to dive on in in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. And we're going to finish out this chapter here today. Here's what he says. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. 
Remember your creator while you're young. Don't wait till, don't let decades pass you by. Don't let years, don't waste a portion of your life running after things that won't actually get to fill that void within you. Pursue him. Your story doesn't have to be, I wandered away from God for five years or for 10 years, and then we had kids, and then we came back, and we're just trying to, with a whole bunch of regrets. Your story can be, I never walked away. I followed God. I pursued him. Remember your creator. Remember that he created you, that he created a world that's good. And actually, if you remember last week at the end of 11, as he ties this idea, remember your creator, it comes at the end of some ideas in chapter 11, where he's saying, actually, while you're young, I want you to pursue the the things that God's placed on your heart. Like God's wired you up and he, he actually commands, enjoy life. One of, the, one of the biggest sins, the first sin in humanity, was this idea that Satan asks Eve and plants this thought in her heart that God's holding out on you. Like there's good things that God's holding back from you. It caused humanity to go down the path of rebelling against God and searching for meaning and purpose in all kinds of ways that wouldn't bring it. That was the beginning. And I was like, no, actually, walking in the way of God, he, he wants your joy. He's interested in your joy. He's not holding out on you. Now, align your life. Remember, enjoy your life, but do it in a way that honors him. That was the big lesson of last week. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't wait. You know, some of the decisions you make early when you're a young person, they will set the course of your life. Some of the most important decisions you make happen when you're young. And Solomon says, so, so don't miss this opportunity to set a trajectory, to set a direction of your life, to have your propulsion take you in a direction that's worth going. Align your life. You know, one of the most important decisions you make is who you do life with, who you're friends with. As a young person, if you're in high school, the friends you choose will chart the quality and direction of your life more than any other influence in your life? Are you, are you picking friends? Are you surrounding yourself with people who are drawing you closer to Jesus or drawing you away from your creator? That's a good question to ask. It's a very important question. Um, who, who you choose to marry more than any other relationship in your life will, will, will set the direction. You looking for someone? Are you going to not settle for someone less than really loves Jesus and is going to pull you and propel you and help you follow Jesus in your life? That's the call of Scripture. And it's for your joy. It's for your ultimate joy in life. Don't wait to align your life to, to what God says when you're young. Because he says the days are coming when, when it's not going to be so easy, where you won't have the same energy in fact, there was a quote we, we talked about early in the series that I thought was really good. Um, I couldn't remember who said it, but I, I, looked at, I found it. It was a guy named Terry Pratchett in the Times. He said this, inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. <laughs> Anybody in the room want to say amen? <laughs> You're like, I'm not old, I'm older, and I, I already know that's true. <laughs> it is true. Do you know you begin dying at a cellular level at the age of 27? Yeah, that's when it starts going downhill. 
I'm just saying, for some of you in the room, it's not looking really good. So, uh, no one in Pacific. So. All right, verse two, before the sun. So now he's going to go into this poetic. Of course, we're expecting he's going to be really like cheery and end on an up note, right? He's like, no, I'm going to take you down the path again. I'm going to remind you what's coming. So we're going to get really serious again and remind you what's coming here. He says this, remember your creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut and the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. He's describing the end of life aging, saying, hey, there's going to be a day you're strong and fit right now, and you're, there's going to be a day when your hands tremble. He says, uh, you, you got strong, broad shoulders right now. There's going to be a day uh, when you don't stand up quite so tall. You got some good grinders right now? There's going to be a day when they fall out. Now, in his day, you just had to gum it, right? Now you can take your a new set out and stick them on the shelf next to you at night. There's going to be a day when the windows, your eyes don't work quite so well. My wife was teasing me and making fun of me because I started looking at my phone more, more and more like that trombone. Anybody else? So she bought me some reading glasses. I'm like, I don't need those. And I'm like, oh, wow, wow. I got a 2020 vision. What's going on? There's going to be a time when the songs of the daughters, when, when your ears, your hearing isn't what it used to be, and it goes out. But have you noticed, um, anybody in the room that may be getting a little older, you, you may not be able to hear it, but the smallest little thing wakes you up at night, and you can't go back to sleep. He says, it's coming. He goes on, verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, white hair, and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the street. He talks about this thing as, as you get older, that the things that were used to be easy aren't easy anymore, and you, and you begin like one of your fears becomes falling, just falling. If you've, I've, I've watched this with my grandparents as they've aged. I only have one living grandparent left. Um, but my other grandparents, as they aged, it is so telling, I think, that this generation that like jumped out of airplanes and stormed the beaches in Normandy, and you go back, and have you ever gone back and looked at pictures of your great-grandparents? And you're like, wow, they were so young and fit and attractive. And then you know them, and you're like, wow, and, and they struggle. And interesting that that generation that did so many great things, what takes them out is a fall in their hallway. That was my grandpa. Fell in his hallway in the door, coming out of the door. Broke his hip. Died a week later. There's a time when you can't do the things that you used to do as easily. Even desire fails. And I think there's a hint of, you know, the thousand women kind of 
desire he's talking about that he says that that fades away but it's more than just that it's also that the things you you really enjoy so much today there'll be a time when you don't enjoy them so much anymore when you can't muster up the excitement anymore about life we're hunting and fishing and the things that maybe you're passionate about that there will be a time when you're not so passionate about that anymore he goes on in verse 6. And in verse 6, these are all metaphors that talk about um, a well, which in ancient culture was always tied to this idea, a wellspring of life. He says this in 6. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. Um, not just aging, but it's randomness of life too. No one knows how long you have, do you? Accidents and tragedies happen, things you didn't see coming. Verse 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And here's his conclusion about this process. Vanity of vanities, said the preacher, all is vanity. All is habel. It's fleeting. It's a vapor. It's a mist. As much as you try, you can't hang on to it. It slips through your fingers. And your soul returns to God. Now, now there's hope in here. The spirit returns to the creator. See, he's not coming from a naturalistic worldview which is so prevalent in our culture, that everything just started with energy and matter and a giant explosion. And all you are are a bunch of atoms colliding against each other. And the love you think you feel towards your loved ones are actually just chemical reactions in your brain and, and proteins. And... No, you have a meaning, you have a purpose, you were created. See, the one, the one idea leads you to a path of despair and meaninglessness, doesn't it? Well, if that's all there is, why don't you eat, drink, and be merry? Because tomorrow you die, and what else is there? But understanding there's a creator all of a sudden begins to set things in context. So in this whole section, Solomon reminds us of the hard reality of what is coming in life. He's cheery today, isn't he? Cheery little section of poetry. And he says, hey, remember your creator. Don't miss out on the beauty of life. Don't waste your time propelled, using all your energy propelled in a direction that will end up leaving you with pain and regret that you will get to the end of and recognize it never filled that place. But I never stopped to ask, what am I seeking? What am I pursuing? Enjoy life as the gift that it is. Because it is fleeting. It goes fast. But God wants you to experience joy. Have you ever realized that um, a useful thing to realize is in your life? I remember one Christmas as, I'm, as I was looking around and my grandparents were still with us. And, and it was just a sweet, special moment. And, and they, were, they were getting pretty old. But, you know, uh, at least my grandpa's mind was still really there. Grandma forgot a lot of things. 
But I looked around and, and, and just that realization where it just hits you like this, this very likely could be the last year. I remember thinking that for a few years and one, one year it was. One not long ago. Where you have that realization. The truth is in every action in life, in everything you enjoy, this could be the last time that you enjoy that. This could be the last moment that you have that relationship. If you remember that, maybe it will help you slow down a little bit and actually be present with the people you care about the most. Because we're not, none of us is guaranteed more time, right? We know that. We know that. One author said this, it is possible so as to, it, it, it is possible to live so as to make old age very sad. And then it is possible to live so as to make it very beautiful. I bet you know some of each kind of person, don't you? Some that, that, that old age has proven to be this beautiful sunset of a life very well lived and many people very well loved. And others who lived pretty much just for themselves. And there's not a lot of joy. Are you slowing down enough to actually enjoy life as a gift from God to you today? Or are you so busy trying to control it and grasp onto it that you're not even enjoying what God's created for you? Now he's going to wrap up this section. He's moving towards the end. And so he starts to reflect on, on his life and the things he's done. In verse 9, he says this, besides being wise, remember, he has wisdom that God specifically gave to him. He's the wisest guy that ever walked the planet except for Jesus. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. You can find a lot of those in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature right before this book. He, he, uh, we're told in 1 Kings he compiled somewhere like three or 4,000 Proverbs in his life. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, like pegs firmly fixed. You can hang your hat on them. Are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. He recognizes these words, this wisdom that God has given me, it's not just, it doesn't originate within me. It's from without. This is wisdom from God. The words, some of these words that I've been given in my life, they're actually being put down and recorded in scripture, but they're from God. They're wisdom for humanity. They're wisdom about what is actually true, what is right in this world the way God created the world to be. I heard this phrase, uh, some of our staff were doing this consultancy thing with this group out of Tennessee, and they have a a phrase, and it was really powerful, um, and it goes like this, words create worlds. Have you ever thought about that? Words create worlds. Now, if you go back to the very beginning of of the book, we're told what? That, the, that God actually speaks the universe into existence. In fact, we're told John puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that everything that existed came into being through him. 
So on a very real level, words, the words that God spoke created the universe, created this world that we're in. But our words create worlds too. They create a direction in life. They create propulsion towards things. I'm sure you've had people in your life, maybe somebody, that you still hear their voice over and over in your head, and their words created a world for you, and it was a world that made you founder. It was a world that said you're not good enough or you'll never be enough. Some of you, you still struggle with that years and years later. You hear a little voice in your head. Um, some of you, you hear a voice and, it, and you had somebody in your life that spoke some hard words to you, but they were words of truth and they were just what you needed to hear and they called something greater out of you. I, I expect more out of you. You have it in you. Come on, I want to see this. And they spoke like destiny into your life. They spoke vision into your life of, of moving from the place you were to a better place and it actually propelled you. It set the course of your life, maybe a teacher, maybe a parent. And you're so thankful for those hard words that they spoke to you that were full of both grace and truth, like Jesus. And Solomon says, that's like these words. These, this is truth that I have collected. And he says they're like goads. Anybody know what a goad was? In an agricultural society, as they would herd sheep or um, or they'd be plowing with oxen, a goad was a long and sharp, pointy stick where it would, like, out. And when the sheep or the ox, you know, when the sheep was going off course, they would bring it back into the right direction. When the ox lost its propulsion and uh, decided it would just get lazy on the job, ah, it, would get on the, it would get moving again, start plowing, take its head up, quit eating, get on course. And he says, these words are like that. Anybody felt like that a little bit? in the last 10 weeks going through this. Ouch, those words hurt. Solomon, uh, positive, like, come on, I wanted this to be positive, encouraging. You're making me, I could have been skiing this weekend. There's powder. Instead, I'm here hearing about, like, the finality of life. You're such a downer, dude. He's like, no, no, no. My words are like goads. If you allow them to, they're going to propel you to somewhere worth going somewhere worth going. Where, what are your words creating? Are you speaking grace and truth into people's lives? Are you creating worlds? Are you tearing people up? Are you tearing people down? Are you lifting them up? Are you calling them to something greater? When it comes to your family, when it comes to your relationships, where are your words? Where are your words? He says, these are words of truth truth. He says, he goes on about these words. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And here, here's the truth. Some of you experienced this in um, the course of a college degree in philosophy or studying a philosophy class that there is no end to information, right? In our age, we're creating more information every day than you can wrap your, we can wrap our minds around. It's mind-boggling. We're, we're, we have information overload, and yet so often that is completely separated, divorced from truth and from the reality of what God says and from wisdom, isn't it? And he's saying, you can study, you can learn. And it's not that those things are bad to study and learn, but beware because 
infinite information that's divorced from divine revelation, from God actually revealing something, which he does all throughout his word. Infinite, infinite information divorced from revelation usually propels you in the wrong direction. I remember early in this series, we talked about this philosophy major. One of my com- uh, commentators was talking about this party he went to in college, and this super brilliant, smart philosophy major was at this college uh, with a bottle of vodka in one hand, just rhythmically banging his head up against the wall. The dude had so much information, and yet he had no direction for his life, nothing propelling him to something worth living. And Solomon says, my words, what I'm telling you are truth. They may hurt a little bit, but it's truth. See, we have this interesting and dangerous idea in our culture that every individual one of us has the right to define our own truth as we see it. And it's always subjective as we feel it, right? I feel it, so it must be. This is my truth. I think Solomon would, would talk to us and go, you are headed down a wrong direction. Your energy is being propelled in a way that's only going to lead you to pain and regret in life. Because you're not the creator. The one who created everything gets to define what truth is. And there's only so much you can figure out on your own through philosophy, through, through study, through observation of nature. Oh, there, you can figure out some stuff. Like, you can figure out there must be a God. We're told that in Romans. But to understand the heart of this God, it has to be revealed to you. And that's exactly what happens in Scripture, is this God reveals himself to us and, and reveals to us, cre- literally speaks out the world as it actually really is. Words create worlds. He says, I'm the one who tells you the end from the beginning. Listen to me. And here's how Solomon concludes, um, these next two verses, concludes his book. Now, you might be thinking it's like some cheery, like, uh, you know, lighthearted send-off and greetings. So do you really expect that after we've been through this whole book? He is going to dig in right to the very end. Here's what he says. Here's the end of the matter. Like after all the grand experiment of my life, after I've experienced this, after I walked down a path and walked away from God and pursued after all these foreign women that led me into idolatry, at the end of the matter, all has been heard. I've spoken my piece, he says. And here's what it boils down to. Fear God, keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, that you would actually understand. Now, this doesn't mean a, uh, you see, he also says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs. He's not talking about a, a cowering sort of kind of thing. It's an awe. It's a reverence. It's a understanding that the creator, of the, that, that God is God and you are not that you give him worship that's due his name, that you properly align your life in relationship to him. So you've been given a little bit of time, a little bit of stuff in your life, some talent and ways he's wired you up. And the primary thing you can do is place your life in proper relationship to him. 
that you would fear him, that you would honor him, and that you would then, um, you would weigh him heavily enough in your life that you actually don't just hear his words, but you do what he says. That you allow the truth of what he says to actually um, influence the way you live. See, this is why some of you are stuck. Because in the verse before, um, you're just always wanting more and more information and you're not doing anything with the information you already have in your life. That God says, here, I've revealed this to you. Now align your life that way. And you're like, but I don't like that. It hurts. It's painful. It's, it's a goad. He says, yeah, but it's true. It's the way the world and the universe is wired up. When it comes to your relationships, I'm not telling you this about, you know, sex, or I'm not telling you this about love to keep you from joy. I know what's best for you because I created you, and I want your joy. When it comes to what has your, your heart, I know that when you're enslaved to your stuff and, and always to the next shiny object, um, it, it's going to bring a sense of despair ultimately in your life. I want what's best for you. I want your joy. So you honor God. You reverence him. You fear God. And you align your life to what he says. And he comes around. He says this in verse 14. Four. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's a nice, cheery little send-off. Sobering, isn't it? You know what the truth is? All of life is lived before the face of God. There's no secret before God. There's secrets before others. And he says, one day you're going to stand in front of that God. He's pointing us. Now, Solomon writes this a thousand years before Jesus. He doesn't know the end of the book yet. He's just written one in the middle. This collection of 66 books that is the book, the Bible, the Biblia. It's headed in a trajectory. It has a beginning and it has an end point. And God says, I'm revealing to you what that end point is. And guess what? Everything in the Old Testament, including this, is pointing forward to Jesus. The day when Jesus will walk, when God will take on flesh and walk this planet and live a perfect life and then give it away, die for us to pay the ultimate penalty for our sin. See, nobody was perfect even at the time Solomon wrote this, right? For sure. And nobody's sitting out here that's perfect either. And so they would have to go and sacrifice year after year a lamb or a bull to cover sin. And in the Old Testament, you see over and over types and shadows pointing to Jesus, like the Passover lamb, this precious lamb that was, that was killed, that they would be covered and protected from the destroyer. And Solomon gets a glimpse of this as he closes out this book, that that's where it's going to happen. And Jesus comes, and he lives, and he dies. And he also paints a picture of this. And in his revelation at the very end of the book, there's divine revelation, and then there's the book called Revelation that's the end of the Bible, that's the end of the book that shows us where history is pointed. And we see a scene 
that picks up where Solomon is and where, where the apostle John tells us this vision from God. He says, then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. And from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And at this moment in history, which God promises us is coming, the most important question you can answer in this life now, while you have it today, is, is my name in that book? Is my name in the book of life? Have I really trusted in what Jesus did? Have I embraced, am am I a follower of Jesus? Is my faith and trust in him? Because the bad news is that all of us had sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans. But the good news is that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That he saw everything you would ever do in the past, everything you will ever do in the future, and he still says, I love you and I want you for one of my own. And salvation is a free gift, one that is to be received. Just like life is a gift he's given, and he wants you to enjoy and receive it and be thankful. So Solomon says, I've got words of delight. Some of them are like goads. Some of them are hard to hear. But the ultimate words, I think, of delight come at the end of Revelation because judgment isn't the end. Here's, I'm going to invite uh, Samuel to come up. He's going to play for a minute while we close. And as he comes up, I just want to uh, give you an opportunity just to listen to the Scripture. And so why don't you just close your eyes and just try to focus on it. It's not on the screen. This is what God says is coming. Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea, representing chaos, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, the the whole, like, feeling life fade away, the end of life aging the pain, the randomness. That wasn't the way God originally intended it. He says there's going to be a day of restoration where I'll wipe every tear from your eyes, all the things that you, do, you don't understand that they happen, on the prayers that you don't understand why I didn't answer them the, the way you asked for in the moment. There's going to be a day where I wipe every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And what is he doing? It says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's what the one who sees the end from the beginning 
who speaks worlds into existence says is true. And if you're here and you're a follower of him, that is the future. The fact that you will stand before your Savior. That is the future. The fact that, that he promises you something beyond your greatest imagination. That's the place you're headed. That's the trajectory. The question is, are you living like it? Are you living like it? What is your direction in life? What, are, what is your life propelled towards? Are you pursuing a whole bunch of things? Like, are you living like this is true? Like, this is ultimate? Or are you so spun out on the next shiny thing, on what you perceive as success, on what people think about you, thinking like the grass is greener over there, thinking if I could just get there, then, then I'll be there. Are you actually living, like Jesus says, seek first my, the kingdom of God? All the other stuff will be added. Seek first his kingdom. Live in the light of eternity. Invest your life in a way that there'll be something left, something that you can take with you. To live is Christ, to die is gain. There is actually a gain. There is a profit in life, but it doesn't come from pursuing those things. It comes from living for him. Are you actually enjoying life as a gift from him, or are you just frustrated because you can't control it? What worlds are your words creating right now? Is there someone in your life you maybe need to invest more in? Are you in his word, the word of God? Are you aligning your life to truth, or is there an area that you know is true, but you don't want to because it kind of hurts a little bit. And so you said, no, I'm going to go my own way on this. Is what God says about the reality of the destination, is it actually directing your steps? Is it actually propelling you to live differently right now? I hope you'll pray about that this week. See if maybe there's something God's asking you to do to align your life with his truth. Would you stand? As we close in prayer, I, I want to give, if anybody in the room, uh, maybe it clicked for you the gospel, the good news that Jesus offers you life, that it's a free gift that needs to be received. If that's you, I just want to uh, invite you to respond like this, and then I'll pray for the rest of us. You can pray a simple prayer as we bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe in you, that you are the Son of God, that you died and rose again. And I place my trust in you for my salvation and what you accomplished on the cross for me. I want to live my life for you. I want to turn around and follow you with all my might. Would you propel me in a direction worthy of living? Lord, for... Uh, for all my other friends, would you help us um, let this book be something that reads us, that you would expose the motives of our heart, and that you would change the course and the direction of, some, of, of our lives through it. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.